From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. ReserveCast, we're talking with Richard Carlin and Ken Bloom, the co-authors of UB Blake, Rags, Rhythm, and Race, a new biography of one of the key composers of the 20th century American popular song and jazz. A gifted musician, Blake rose from performing in dance halls and bordellos of his native Baltimore to the heights of Broadway. As successful as he was, racism and bad luck hampered Blake's career. Remarkably, the third act of Blake's life found him heralded in his 90s at major jazz festivals, in Broadway shows, and on television recordings. This week on PreserveCast, we're talking UB Blake. Richard Carlin is a Grammy Award-winning author of numerous books on popular music, including Country Music, A Very Short Introduction, Godfather of the Music Business, Morris Levy, The Big Book of Country, and Worlds of Sound, The Story of Smithsonian Folkways. Ken Bloom is a New York-based author, Grammy Award-winning theater historian, playwright, director, record producer, and author. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we are joined by both Richard Carlin and Ken Bloom, the co-authors of UB Blake, Rags, Rhythm, and Race, a new biography of one of the key composers of the 20th century American popular song and jazz. And uh, we're thrilled to have you here, not only because this is an important topic, but also it's uh, it's a topic and a story rooted in Baltimore, which is where we're based out of. Um, and uh, so maybe before we get started, and this will be a question for both of you, um, which is, uh, let's learn a little bit about, about you. Um, what brought you to this point in your career? And Where'd you uh, grow up and what has your career path been? And maybe we'll start with Richard and then we'll go over to Ken. Well, uh, like a lot of people in the arts, my career has been uh, somewhat self-made and uh, developed over time. Uh, I'm from outside of New York City. Uh, I've been writing about and working in the area of music history Really, beginning in my high school years, I, I actually got to see UB Blake perform in 1972 uh, when he came to Princeton, and that was one of my first exposures to him. Um, uh, my major career trajectory was in book editing. I was an acquisitions editor for about 30 years, uh, and luckily got to work in music and the arts. Uh, and as part of my job, I acquired several books by Ken Bloom who then became a friend and co-conspirator. And uh, when uh, I think we were just chatting one day and we said, you know, there really ought to be a good biography of UB Blake. And that's kind of where the whole thing started. Cool. And th- that's, a, that's a good um, segue over to, to Ken. So I was born in Silver Spring, Maryland. Oh, okay. And went to the University of Maryland. And I have a lot of friends in Timonium and all over Baltimore. And um, when I was young, I had a cousin. We used to go to the convention center. And then we used to go down before the dock area was cleaned up. We would go to these old restaurants that were so great. It's sort of too bad they knocked that down. But anyway, we used to go to the Peabody. And um, so after college, I went to the University of Maryland. I was an art major. 
And uh, I started in theater. We created a theater called New Playwrights in the 70s. And then I moved to New York and did some theater and started writing books. And I had, uh, I was part of a record company that I founded with this guy, Bill Rudman, back in the 80s. And we produced a cast album of the original company of Shuffle Along. And I asked Richard to do the liner notes with me. And surprisingly, we won a Grammy Award. I mean, really surprisingly. It's surprisingly. <laughs> because, you know, there were big box sets with booklets, and we were like, what? And um, then we did a follow-up disc of a show called Shuffle Along of 1950 that Cecil and Blake tried to get on and ended up being in 1952 sort of put on. Uh, so that's our background with Shuffle Along. And I've written a lot of books, produced a lot of CDs. I just did a documentary on Gwen Verdon called Merely Marvelous that's doing the film festival circuit. So I've done a lot of different stuff. Very cool. Well, it's, it's, it's always interesting. We, we um, interview a lot of different people here and everybody has such unique backgrounds on how they get to this work. And I think it's interesting too, that UB Blake um, in some ways brought you both together um, as, as well as your artistic backgrounds. So let's talk a little bit about the book, um, which is again, UB Blake rags, rhythm and race. Um, and before we dive into his life, I guess maybe the question is, why U.B. Blake? Um, what made him such an interesting individual to chronicle? Um, and why did you... I mean, obviously, I understand that you felt like there needed to be a biography, but but why did there need to be a biography? Why is he so important? And I don't know which one of you wants to take that first, or um, you know, we'll hear from both of you, probably. Go ahead, Richard. You can start. Yeah, I mean, I think... One of the things that interests me about him was that UB had such a long career, really spanned a century, and that he moves through so many different styles of popular music. He began in ragtime. He then worked very successfully in Broadway. Eventually, he even experimented with classical and sort of semi-classical jazz, and then ended his career, ironically, looping back and becoming pretty well known as a, a ragtime performer and composer. I'm always interested in people's whose life covers such a broad uh, cultural history, as well as specifically a personal history. The other thing that was, that I didn't know up front, but that was quite amazing about UB, unlike a lot of other people that I've written about, is that he saved everything. And um, through good, good fortune, everything he saved is now at the Maryland Historical Society in Baltimore. And so it's just unusual to be able to say, here's the contract that he signed in 1917 to record 78s. I mean, it, you just don't have that kind of documentation from most performers. And so that really opened up a, a, a great deal of. Um, of sort of a whole world of understanding his position as an African-American composer, but also in the broader commercial music world. Yeah, and I got into it. I was really interested in it because as a theater historian, he's never really gotten his due. There was a very well-received book in the 70s, I think, called Reminiscing with Cecil and Blake by uh, William Bolcom and Bob Kimball. But that was it. It was just a small biography that 
was very minor. And Shuffle Long was so instrumental in Broadway history, in jazz history, that, you know, and it was sort of forgotten. That's why we did the album, and that's why we did the book, because he deserves to be credited with everything he did. And he was, uh, at the end of his life, he was a link to 100 years before. So he spanned the whole history of American musical theater and music and had an influence all the way through. Do you want to, maybe since you brought it up, and we're going to talk a little bit about his early life in Baltimore, because I think that might be interesting to some people listening. But since you brought it up, Shuffle Along, um, it's a, you know it's obviously a big part of the book, and it's, it's a really important part of the story. Um, and obviously, we want people to pick the book up, and they can read it in detail. But um, Ken, do you, maybe you, since you were the one who brought it up, do you want to just give people sort of a snapshot of what Shuffle Along was, why it's important, and and sort of that context that you just gave it as well, like why it means so much to American um, musical theater history. Well, it was uh, done in 1921. And if you think of 1921, the operetta people like you, um, uh, Victor Herbert and Sigmund Romberg and Rudolf Frimmel were sort of on the way out. and. Irving Berlin had started in like 1918, really, and he started going forward, but Yubi brought real jazz to it. Irving Berlin brought single, and Yubi brought real jazz. So for that reason, if you can imagine a Broadway audience and a mixed Broadway audience, which was also astounding for the period, it must have been a tremendous shock to them to hear this music, because white people did not hear ragtime piano at the time. They were still foxtrotting and waltzing and stuff like that. And, and as we say in the book, the fact that there was a black audience and a white audience and that the show was so unheralded, no one thought it was going to be anything. It was given in what was an auditorium up at 63rd Street, past Columbus Circle. It was the northernmost theater, I say in quotes, and uh, it had very little backstage. Everything had to be done sort of like a, uh, a chorus line. Everything had to be horizontal to the stage. But it, it was such a big impact. And when it went around the country, Cecil and Blake insisted that even if the blacks had to sit in the balcony, it would be a show that black people and white people could like, you know, equally. And when black people and white people sat together in the orchestra section, that was revolutionary too. So obviously that that had this profound impact. And I think it's interesting too that you point out um, that white audiences were not listening to that kind of music. I think now, um, you know, 100, 120 years on, um, people don't really recognize that. Um, but that was a very different thing for white audiences to be hearing. Um, and UB is, I guess, sort of that linchpin in how that all changes. Yeah, if uh, what I would emphasize, I guess, is that Shuffle Along broke through so many rules. There, there had been a period around the turn of the century where Black-authored, Black-performed shows had a brief popularity, but they were never performed on Broadway. Um, and they were primarily performed for a non-integrated audience. What Shuffle Along did was it brought an entire production, written, produced, scored, acted, 
by uh, black uh, creators, it portrayed a wide range of black characters well beyond the stereotypes. There really were only two acceptable figures on stage for blacks previously. There's the sort of town dandy, which uh, or versus the sort of country bumpkin kind of character, if you will. This was the first play that portrayed a real romance between a black man and a black woman, both of whom were educated and were middle class, at, you know. And so that was really astounding. In fact, one of the stories that uh, UB told was when they had the first love song on opening night and they, they were all poised to run out of the theater. They were afraid there would be a riot because just portraying true love versus a kind of comic or a highly sexualized love was just unheard of. So there were so many ways that this play set new standards. Of course, when you look at it today, there's lots about it that appears dated. And so ironically, even though it was revolutionary for its time, it's very hard to be revived in its original form. Right. And I'm not sure that's a condemnation because I think anything uh, that's 100 years plus old is probably going to come off as somewhat dated. Uh, so um, yeah. your book your book starts with chronicling um, Yubi's ancestors, which I think is interesting. And um, the challenge of, you know, you've been kind of very clear in the book that it's challenging to, to do this kind of research, particularly about African-Americans and um, their ancestry beyond their, you know, their parents. Um, and you talk about his early life in Baltimore. Um, and I'm curious, how much does Baltimore shape the person that he'll become? Well, the, uh, I think it was very central to his life. He, he remained connected to Baltimore for many decades. Um, he, really, he really felt very strongly his roots there. And I think there were a lot, of, a lot of ways that Baltimore shaped him. One way was in his perception of his race. He makes a point that even though he grew up in what was essentially a slum area, that it wasn't segregated that there were poor whites and poor blacks living together, but there still was racial prejudice that he encountered. He tells, one of the stories he often told was when he was walking to school that the white kids would throw rocks at the black kids. And once he got into a scuffle uh, and he came home and he told his father, I hate all white people. And his father was quick to tell him, no, no, that's, you know, you can't, he really, taught him a very subtle lesson, which was on the, you know, that in a way that you can't judge people just by the actions of a few, and you have to understand that they have a limited understanding of what it is to be black in this, in this world. So I, I think that, you know, beyond the fact that Baltimore also at the time just had numerous dance halls, uh, social clubs, there was a whole structure of black social life. There was an amusement park, Riverview Park, which you could just go to for the cost of the streetcar ride. Uh, there was the hotel road by the prize fighter Joe Gantz, the Goldfield Hotel that, that catered to both black and white audience. There were the, what UB called euphemistically, the hook shops, 
which were basically whorehouses. Um, so there was a, this rich structure that supported music and musicians that he was able to tamp into through his sheer talent and um, really develop a, a career. Yeah, and you have to remember that Baltimore was a major industrial city at the time. And so there were opportunities for blacks as well as whites, even if they were lower down the socioeconomic scale. People were not starving. The, you know, his father worked at the docks. And, and so the black community could really have a real community. They were separate maybe from the white community, but it was a full community. It, it wasn't like they were striving to get into the white community. So there were a lot of opportunities for him, even if it was in a whorehouse or some other, you know, house of ill repute. And he could make his way and learn his craft. So I'm not sure if it was a house of ill repute or not, but Aggie Shelton's Baltimore Bordello, which is just a a, a beautiful, I mean, just sort of a, a very evocative title. Um, and then his, ho- his home on Forest Street. Um, I think I know the answer to these, but do either of these places still stand? Um, is, is there a, a physical connection to some of his earliest haunts? As far as we know, the, the entire slum area he lived in, as Ken was saying, was urban redeveloped because they lived near the docks where his father worked. And um, uh, the only remnant of the Goldfield Hotel where he played piano for the famous prize fighter Joe Gans is there is a plaque in the sidewalk, but the building doesn't exist. I don't think the Maryland Theater, I'm not sure. And do you know if the if that's still there? Because the um, downtown Baltimore moved closer and closer to the docks as as the sort of shipping industry changed, and you can see how the downtown, you know, moved down the hill from Mount Vernon toward the water. And uh, when you were living near the water, that meant you were living where the water was of bad quality. There were mosquitoes. There were bugs. There were rats. So that wasn't, you know, everybody else was up on Mount Vernon at the top of the hill. But there was nowhere to go but down. And so the white um, Baltimore sort of subsumed where the blacks were, I think. It's interesting. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it's a statement about the preservation of African-American resources and um, the loss of these tangible connections. Although, at least in his case, we still have the music. Um, So let's... um, Let's talk about the, the the breakout moment for him. And we've talked about, um, you know, I guess the, the breakout play itself. But but what takes him from the Baltimore Bordellos to Broadway? Um, and I guess as a follow-up to that or as a subset to that, how unique was this for a black man of that period? And I don't know if Ken or Richard, who wants to jump in first on this one? I would say it was that he never felt that he was being held back in any way. You know what I mean? And so they, um, they approached Sophie Tucker, who was playing in Baltimore, and she actually took one of their songs. And I think that success of just having that done gave them the idea that they could do anything. Yeah, he had, Yubi was fortunate in that he had, he himself probably would have stayed in Baltimore. He was sort of a homebody. And in a way, he was perfectly happy doing what he was doing, but he encountered a lyricist named Noble Sissel. And Sissel was very driven. 
And it was Sissel who went to Sophie Tucker when she was appearing at the Maryland Theater and pitched her this song. And really, in an unheard of, because usually when a song was pitched to a major star, it was up to the composer to provide the arrangement. And really, there was some kind of payoff. In this case, she just took the song and she had it arranged at her own expense. It was published locally. It was a big seller in Baltimore. And that really gave Cicel and Blake the impetus to continue writing songs. Then they started to tour vaudeville. Their success on, and they were touring white vaudeville, unlike figures like Bessie Smith, who were basically touring the black vaudeville circuit. And so they, they achieved a level of success that was unusual for the day. But certainly, there were other Black composers, certainly, who uh, wrote for the theater before them. But again, reaching Broadway was a, just an entirely new level of success that was really opened the door for people like Duke Ellington, James Johnson, other Black composers, Andy Razif. Fats Waller, all to write for the theater. And it's important to know that Cicel and Blake never played a black stereotype. When they were um, in vaudeville, they wore tuxedos. They were a class act. And as we say in the book, a lot of the managers of the, of the theaters were not ready for that. They thought they were going to do the whole shuffling black stereotype, maybe put on blackface, you know, they never did any of that. They were classy all the way. And I think that helped with their own self-esteem. And people then treated them in a different way than the more, I don't know, I don't want to, uh, the more stereotypical black people who performed in, on vaudeville. They were, they were elevated and they went up to play the Palace Theater, which was the epitome of uh, vaudeville at the time. That might be a good place for us to take a quick break because um, we're we're we've made it to the Palace Theater, and then maybe we'll talk about what happens mid-career and, and how he rebounds, um, and we'll do that right here in PreserveCast. One hundred years ago, in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit BallotAndBeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Sarah A. Whitehurst, the woman largely responsible for extending the honor of serving on a jury to Maryland women. Read by Ellie Comers Cowan, Director of Advocacy at Preservation Maryland. Sarah A. Whitehurst. When women won the right to vote in 1920, Many women's rights advocates assumed that they had also automatically won all of the other rights of citizenship, yet their new rights did not extend to sitting on a jury. Although bills were introduced soon after suffrage, the opposition was just as swift, with many men saying that women should be protected from the unsavory testimonies they might hear. In 1922, one Maryland legislator warned, 
Ladies, you know not whereof you speak. Jury service is a revolting thing. You will be forced to hear horrible things, to listen to tales of vice and sagas of corruption. Your dainty ears will be filled with stories which will keep you awake at night. In addition to that, it's no job for a woman. Not particularly popular with women either, organizers learned. In the words of one, they would first have to sell the women before they sold the men. It would take a coalition of Maryland club women to convince them. Sarah A. Whitehurst of Baltimore was president of the Maryland Federation of Women's Clubs from 1930 to 1932. She and two other women, Genevieve Wells and Dorothy Shipley Granger, led the Maryland Committee for Jury Service, an umbrella group of 30 women's groups. They took up the same tactic that had won them the vote, organizing and testifying. At one point, they marched to the state capital of Annapolis. As suffragist Elizabeth Cady Stanton said, the history of the past is but one long struggle upward to equality. The law finally passed in 1947 and Judge Calvin Chestnut impaneled two Baltimore women on the federal grand jury. A few days later, a Baltimore City judge seated three women on a jury, calling it an important day in the development of justice. Meanwhile, Sarah Whitehurst had gained a national reputation. In 1933, she was appointed to the Board of Regents of the University of Maryland, where she served until 1966. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're very excited to be joined by both Richard Carlin and Ken Bloom, who are the co-authors of UB Blake, Rags, Rhythm, and Race, a new biography of UB Blake, a Baltimore native who went on to do big things all across the country. So before we took our break, he he has made it to sort of just really the, the pinnacle of, of Broadway and performing. And um, I think as Ken mentioned, um, did it in a tuxedo and, and, and in a very non-stereotypical way um, um, that really says a lot about who he was and, and the, the, the esteem in which he held himself. But then um, racism, I guess some bad luck, um, hampers that career. Uh, and, and ultimately he will rebound, but, but what did he encounter and how long did it take for him to kind of come back into the national consciousness? Well, um, I think that it's really interesting because Cicel and Blake produced Shuffle Along. It was tremendously successful. I think and it's over 500 performances, which for that day was, you know, amazing. It was the 10th longest running show in the 1920s on Broadway. And when you consider a showboat also played and how many hundreds of shows were done, you know, you could have 50 shows a season on Broadway. Uh, Not like now where a show plays a theater for 20 years. You you played a season because there wasn't that big an audience. And for it to be the 10th longest running show was a miracle. And if you look at the book and all the things that, you know, tried to hold them back when they were touring and they had no money to get on a train and, some guy says, oh, here's the money. You know, it's an astounding story that they made it. Yeah, and I was going to say then they had several touring companies. But once they, of course, were so successful, there were a million copycat shows. And 
within a very short period of time, you watch the critics move from, you know, raving about black shows to really sort of this racist backlash. There was a popular song written called It's Getting Dark on Old Broadway, which was somewhat uh, satirical, but also somewhat offensive <laughs> in the sense that it was kind of critiquing the fact that that white, quote unquote, performers and creators were being um, were being displaced. And when Cecil and Blake tried to follow up with an even more, what they felt, serious play, which was eventually produced as Chocolate Dandies, they, they got critiqued for trying to be too white and that they should stick, black performers should stick to what they do well. And this prejudice was quick to whiplash, um, you know, back on them that so literally by 1924 they're back on vaudeville they can't broad you know they they're they're they they're no longer marketable on broadway and so it's very tragic um another thing that we discovered thanks to ub's record keeping was he'd be hired later on to for example he was hired by lou leslie who was known for staging these reviews that went under the title Blackbirds. And, and you see in the reviews, they'll say, it takes a white man like Lou Leslie to know how to present a black act. It's really the racism that's in the reviews is quite astounding. Nonetheless, Yubi would be hired for 150 a week, but he'd be lucky if he was paid 75. And then when the shows would go bankrupt, um, he couldn't collect any money that was owed to him. Lou Leslie would do Blackbirds of 1929, go broke, strand all the actors on the road, and then he would just shut that down and start Blackbirds of 1930 as a separate entity. So he couldn't be sued. Um, and uh, this happened numerous times to UB throughout his life. Um, uh, you know, so these kind of stark... Uh, the way the industry worked, I think, which is not usually in Broadway histories, you talk about the shows and how they develop, but you don't really talk about the backstory of how the actors were treated. And certainly blacks were treated even more poorly than their white counterparts. Right. When, when the sound era came at the end of the 20s, Rogers and Hart, Irving Berlin, Jerome Kern, Harry Warren, they all went to Hollywood. They were all asked by the studios to go to Hollywood. Yubi was not asked. Fats Waller was not asked. None of the black songwriters who had big hits were asked to go to Hollywood. So that was shut off from them. So for Yubi and Noble, they had to get out of their groove, and it was hard to get out of that groove because they were sort of forced. It was what was expected of them. And if they tried to do a quote-unquote, white show, no one would ever have put it on. So obviously, we, we um, as, as I mentioned before, it's a great read. I've had a chance to, to read it. And, um, you know, you, you go into great detail about how this all comes together and how long it takes him to really rebound. But he does eventually rebound in an interesting way. Um, when does that happen and, and how does that come about? Well, you know, I think that one of the things that both Ken and I remarked on was Yubi's openness to new developments. He, you know, he wasn't the kind of figure who 
rested on his laurels, as it were. He kept experimenting and he kept trying to learn new things. One of the things, he also was a master performer. It, it just, if anyone who saw him perform, or even if you heard recordings, uh, he had an incredible rapport with an audience that he developed over years of playing, you know, these everything from dives to concert halls. But basically in the 50s, there was a group of jazz fans, one of whom was named Ru Rudy Blesch. And they were interested in early jazz at a time when most people weren't. And Rudy, um, along with his girlfriend, Harriet Janis, wrote a book called They All Played Ragtime. And in researching that, they searched out UV and made the first post-war recordings of him. And then eventually Rudy brought him to Newport uh, Jazz Festival in the late 50s. But the thing that really ironically kicked off the ragtime revival, two things. One was um, John Hammond, who was a very famous jazz producer. He had discovered Billie Holiday and Aretha Franklin and Bob Dylan. Uh, he was approached by a fellow named Dave Jason who said, you really ought to record Yubi. You know, he's really a great font of historical knowledge, and Hammond did. And they released an album called The 86 Years of Yubi Blake uh, in 1969. And it got reviewed in Rolling Stone. I mean, it, it, it really brought him a new level of attention. As Ken mentioned, there was the book Reminiscing with Cecil Blake that Bob Kimball and Bill Balcom did. And then, ironically, a white pianist named Josh Rifkin, who was classically trained, put out an album called The Piano Rags of Scott Joplin, which was an unexpected million seller. And all of a sudden, ragtime was hot. So you had The Sting, which some of your listeners might be familiar with, had a ragtime soundtrack. Uh, and UB suddenly became a hot commodity. He was touring the world. It, well into his 80s and 90s. Uh, he became a favorite of Johnny Carson. Uh, he, because uh, he just was a, re he really was an incredibly magnetic and charming performer with an incredible memory. And, you know, he was comfortable in his own person. He didn't have any uh, rancor toward white people or how he was treated in the 40s and early 50s. You know, he was he was always sure of himself. He had a good idea of who he was, and he had a very positive attitude. And even later in life, he started learning the Schillinger method. He never stopped growing and learning about music and how to play the piano and all the different things he could do through the piano. Yeah, and I, I suppose, you know, it's interesting because you it, it's it's fascinating to see someone kind of get this break later in life or, or another break or, you know, another big moment. But, you know, I think it also, having read this and having had the ch chance to chat with both of you, it also just speaks to Yubi, right? I mean, he was, he was always willing to sort of self-invent and try new things. And if you're willing to do those sorts of things, then you can get a break at, at any point in your life. Um, so I think it probably says more about him than maybe even the breaks he got. It was, it was the, his ability to do that. Yeah, and he was fortunate in his second wife, who had been a secretary to W.C. Handy. Uh, she was very super organized and essentially became his agent. He also had a lawyer named Elliot Hoffman, who was known to 
ride a Vespa around Manhattan at a big brushy mustache and represented people like Cindy Lauper, who became his champion. And a, another guy um, who helped him establish his own record label. Again, something that is highly unusual. Nowadays, we're used to artists having their own labels, but in the early 70s, that was an unusual step and it enabled Huey to record as he wanted rather than, you know, be dictated to by the commercial market. And, you know, he, he, I think Bill Balcom told a story where they, they were brought in to Channel 13 to do a documentary and there was this terrible broken down piano and Balcom took one look at it and, you know, again, it was sort of like the stereotype, oh, ragtime, you're going to play on this junky instrument. Balcom was like ready to walk and Yubi was like, oh, no, you know, I was paid to do this job. This is, I'm here, I'm here to show them that they, that I can, you know, really convince them of the quality of what I do, even if they try to stereotype me, even if they try to limit me. And so that, and another story, when he went to Columbia to make the record, they gave him a piano to record on. And he said, well, what about that grand piano in the corner? And he said, oh, that's for Vladimir Horowitz. And he goes, I'll record on that. And he did. So, you know, here's a, here's a very remarkable uh, person uh, all around. And he was interested in mentoring the younger generation. And there were a lot of people who he taught, you know, he would cut not for any money, but who would come and visit him at his house and he'd teach them all the tricks and the way the songs were written, how they were structured and how ragtime worked because ragtime was actually uh, founded on the quadrille and other early French types of music. There was a classical background to a ragtime in addition to the folk type. It was a serious art form at the time. And then people in the 60s, really started getting interested in it, young people. And he mentored a lot of them. Well, I think, you know, in this moment in history when uh, America, you know, is embracing the fact that we need to learn more about African-American history and these these icons of um, African-American music and culture and, and uh, literature, um, this this book comes at a perfect time because it's it's a, an opportunity for people to learn about perhaps someone they don't know, but someone who really is pivotal in just so many different ways. Um, and so it's it's so great to talk with you about this. I guess maybe as sort of a final question here, you know, given the importance of him and the fact that unfortunately fewer individuals, you know, people who watch him on Carson are are you know I know I never had the chance to watch him at least live on Carson, um, but. Um, you know, people seem to, to know less about him. Obviously, your book is doing something um, to help address that historical record. But how else do we remember and honor his legacy today? And, and what else could be done, I suppose, now that you've done all this work? Is there, there are things that you hope to see in the future when it comes to UB's legacy? Well, first, I want to say that we're lucky that going online, you can find a lot of stuff on YouTube, on iTunes, on Apple Music. And you can hear UB Blake if you have the interest. You can watch him and hear him. And you don't have to go out and buy a CD. You can do it in your own house and sort of explore him and his talents. Yeah, I think that one thing that UB was very, very concerned about was 
honoring the history. He was very, very, he was interviewed in numerous times in his later life and, and really, as I said, had an incredible memory and an incredible ear. He would mimic the vocal styles of vocalists that were long dead or the comedy style of people like uh, Burt Williams, the famous comedian, uh, African-American comedian. It's quite amazing. And I think to honor you, be um, one thing we're trying to do, obviously, is uh, next year's the 100th anniversary of Shuffle Along. We're already discussing how we can do some exhibits or concert performances. There at the Maryland Historical Society, there are literally hundreds of unrecorded songs that UB wrote, particularly during those lean years with various collaborators. He had an African American lyricist named Milton Reddy. The two of them wrote a, a, a musical in the 30s for the WPA called Swing It, vastly underappreciated. He worked with Andy Razif on a review called Tan Manhattan which produced a song called We Are Americans Too, which was a, sort of a patriotic song during World War II, but also spoke to black history at a time when uh, not a lot of songs were doing that. So I think there's a rich, rich vein of material. And certainly I think Yubi would say, perform more music by black composers. You know, listen to and experience that music because it hasn't been given the same uh, bandwidth. For example, William Grant Still, who wrote the Afro-American Symphony, who was a close friend of UB's. Uh, there's some people who believe that Gershwin stole the I Got Rhythm theme from him. If you listen to the Afro-American Symphony, there's that theme runs through it, um, suspiciously. Uh, <laughs> one of those things you can't prove, but nonetheless, James P. Johnson, Another person with a tremendous legacy is the man who wrote the original Charleston. Uh, there are just so many of these figures. Uh, Mary Lou Williams. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a rich vein of American cultural life that everyone would benefit from. It's not, it's not like take your medicine. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to encounter this material, and I think everyone would enjoy it. Absolutely. Well, this has um, been a really fun conversation, and uh, the book comes at a, a fantastic time. Um, as I said, people are looking to get more of this content, and this is a great place to do it and tells a great story. And as you say, it's, I guess a good good way to end that conversation is it's not like taking your medicine. This is both the book is pleasurable and so is UB Blake. I mean, he is he's a delight. And um, I just wish I, I'm jealous of the fact that at least Richard mentioned you got to see him live one time. I don't know if Ken ever got to see UB, um, but uh that, I'm, I'm jealous of that. That would have been pretty neat. Um, before we leave, we ask this of anybody who comes on PreserveCast, uh, and this question is for both of you. We'll start with Ken on this one, I guess. Your favorite historic place or site? In Baltimore? Anywhere. Oh, anywhere. That's, that's an excellent question. In Baltimore, I would say it's the Peabody Museum. I think it's, it's underrated, completely underrated. If people find themselves in Baltimore and go there, you'll see all these things that you would associate with a major museum in New York City. For Baltimore, that would be it. Yeah. Okay, I like that. Richard? I have a, uh, 
more eccentric choice. When I was a kid, my father, uh, we lived near, well, we lived in Princeton in New Jersey, and we lived near Doylestown, Pennsylvania, where there was something called the Mercer Museum. There was a General Mercer ran a Moravian tile works, and he set up a museum, and basically he was, he collected stuff. Like he would buy an entire button shop and put it in his museum. Uh, he had stagecoaches hanging from the ceiling. I mean, it was just for a kid an amazing thing. And he was the ultimate, like preserving the 19th century vernacular, but in the most obsessive compulsive way that you possibly could. And I, I think he's both tragically and happily been a very big influence on my life as well. And Ken, Ken can speak to collecting stuff too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, those are two fantastic answers. Um, and uh, I've been to the Peabody. I've never been to the Mercer Museum. so I recommend it highly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you're selling it. So um, <laughs> this has been so much fun. People can pick up the book either at their local bookstore, independent bookseller. You can get it on Amazon. Um, and again, the title is UB Blake, Rags, Rhythm, and Race. Um, both Richard and Ken, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today on PreserveCast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much.
Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.